Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Ben Cohen details the ways in which police are effectively above the law. New Mexico House Speaker Brian Egolf explains why his state eliminated qualified immunity. Stuart Buck of Arnold Ventures details why we need better criminal justice data. Cato's Aaron Parton gives the lay of the land on federal cannabis legalization. And Cato's Mustafa Akiol shows the harm caused by blasphemy laws around the world. Qualified immunity is a made-up Supreme Court doctrine that protects public officials from civil liability after they violate your rights. And the doctrine is, to be clear, an insult to Americans whose rights have been violated. Ben Cohen details some of those stories in Above the Law, How Qualified Immunity Protects Violent Police. We were joined by Cato's Jay Schweikert and Clark Neely. Before we started recording, Ben, we were talking about uh, the effort to uh, help people understand what qualified immunity is, and I uh, compared it to civil forfeiture, which is the first time you explain it, people think that you're just making it up, and then you keep explaining it, and almost everybody says, well, that's terrible. We, we, should, we should get rid of that. Um, and, and you take to that, uh, that task, that heavy lift of education with a new book, Above the Law, How Qualified Immunity Protects Violent Police. What was the goal here? The goal was just to make it really clear and easy to understand for people about how police uh, get let off the hook for committing crimes that if if you or I or any regular person committed them, uh, they'd be prosecuted and they'd be sued and they, they'd be found guilty. And somehow cops just get away with it because they're cops, because what, some judge decided that Cops, otherwise known as law enforcement officers, are not really supposed to know the law unless some other cop broke the law. And was convicted of it. Right. Um, uh, Jay, when when you or I are expected to understand what the law is in an area, um, what is it that ignorance is no excuse, we're told, uh, but it seems to be a pretty good one for cops. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a axiomatic proposition in our legal system that is a general matter. The mere fact that you don't know you're acting unlawfully uh, isn't sufficient to excuse you from liability. And for ordinary citizens, that can actually lead to criminal prosecution uh, under strict liability statutes that no one would really have reason to think they were violating. But when it comes to police officers, it's a different standard. Um, and if you if you you know if you were to imagine any profession that you would expect to be held to a higher standard in this regard, you would think it would be the profession charged with knowing and enforcing the law. But in fact, law enforcement is held to a far lower standard than ordinary citizens, and much lower than any other profession. Yeah, I mean it's kind of absurd. I mean this book has two or three pages stories for seventeen people. Uh, you know, in one situation. Cops stole $200,000 in cash. There's no denying that that happened, but the judge let him off because of qualified immunity. In another situation, uh, this woman who's seven months, uh, seven months pregnant gets tased by the police, gets thrown down on the ground after a traffic stop, and uh, the cops get off. Uh, one of the stories that you feature here is Robert and Adeline Hart. Uh, this is the the story that I just know as the tea leaves. And I know Clark and Jay, uh, we've talked about this story before. Uh, but you know, whoever wants to, I, I think the details of this are worth going through again. Well, I'll tackle this one. What's what's so incredible about this story? So this is a family that lives in Kansas, the the mom and the dad are both retired CIA employees, just to add a little twist to it. And they grow hydroponic vegetables. And so they are observed by police coming out of a hydroponic store, which the police suspect is supplying people who grow marijuana at home. 
Now, the police have got themselves in a bit of a bind here because um, April 20th is coming up and they've already scheduled a press conference where they're going to you know, roll out somebody that they've busted uh, for, for growing marijuana. Uh, the trouble is they don't have anybody. They haven't arrested anybody for this yet. And so they've got to find somebody uh, for, their, for their press conference. And they do a trash pull on the Hart family and they find some wet organic material, some wet leaves. And so when they when they put that together with the fact that they observed, I believe it was the husband and one of the kids coming out of a hydroponic store, they say, oh, these are, you know, this, this, these are our guys, you know, we're going to, so they do a, you know, they do what you, law enforcement euphemistically refers to as a dynamic entry, which is a SWAT entry. They put everybody down on the ground uh, and they do a field test of these, uh, you know, these leaves and, and they get a, a they get a, a positive hit, but what they what they don't either don't realize or they don't care is that the the field test that they used also returns a positive hit for caffeine, and it turned out they were tea leaves. So, long story short, um, the the family is is you know ter- terrorized by a SWAT team. There are the there's an arrest for for you know for marijuana possession, and it all falls apart when they actually finally send the the tea leaves to a, a real laboratory for testing and determine that they're not marijuana. Um, and you know, of course, you know what happens next, which is that you have this long protracted legal uh, dispute, and the courts step in to let the police off the hook by granting qualified immunity, which is what they is basically what that has become the judiciary's job practically is to just let rights violating police off the hook with qualified immunity, and that's why it's become such a travesty. Yeah, and you've got judges that are complaining about it, that are that are saying this is outrageous. That I want this, I want to convict this person, but my hands are tied, and uh, did, so they're up in arms. Uh, yeah, one of the one of the uh, ch- short. These are all very brief chapters, little vignettes uh, uh, about qualified immunity. One of the uh, pieces that you quote here is from Justice Reeves' bumper. Uh, a short excerpt from an order granting qualified immunity uh, dated August 4th, 2020. Uh, Justice Carlton Reeves of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi. What did he say? Uh, this was a case where uh, there was a black guy driving a Mercedes and uh, the cop says he pulled him over because he couldn't read his temporary license plate. And uh the cop keeps on insisting that you've got drugs in the car. And the guy says, no, I don't have drugs in the car. And, you know, you're not allowed to search my car. The cop keeps on saying, I want to search your car. And then the cop lies and says, I've got a report that you've got cocaine in your car. And uh, the guy keeps on insisting, no, you can't search my car. And finally he gives up and says, okay, search my car. So the guys, the cop searches the guy's car, doesn't find anything, and that's not good enough. He calls in a drug-sniffing dog, uh, searches his car, and, you know, this is not just looking around. He's, he tears the guy's car apart. It's not drivable. He doesn't find anything. And uh, so the driver of the car took the cop to court said this was this was illegal you violated my constitutional rights and uh the case again was thrown out by and and this judge who was in that case was outraged that he had to throw that case out and he wrote a decision uh talking about all the cases where cops had abused black people. And what else can a judge do except make as much noise as he can? Yeah, he goes through sentence by sentence here of all of the things that uh, Clarence Jameson was not doing wrong. That was He was not acting suspiciously. He was not behaving in a way that should have signaled to the cops that they could treat him uh, in this manner. It is a really stunning uh, piece of writing. Um, You know, uh, Clark, Jay, uh, we haven't really talked about this much, but we're recording this toward the end of April, and uh, now we have two states uh, and the city of Manhattan that have eliminated qualified immunity. What does it mean when states decide this is a no-go here, and uh, you know, how does that change the calculus uh, for the Supreme Court possibly? 
Yeah. So starting with the states, um, you know, qualified immunity is a federal doctrine that applies to federal lawsuits. And of course, states don't have the authority to change federal law. But what states can do and what New Mexico and Colorado have now already done, uh, as well as the New York City Council, is enact state level civil rights laws and specifically clarify that those civil rights laws will not allow qualified immunity as a defense. So what the states here are doing is recognizing that our federal civil rights system isn't working the way it's supposed to because of qualified immunity, and they're creating an alternative in state courts, um, which I think is an absolutely you know uh, crucial and necessary step forward here, both because, you know, unfortunately, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to be reconsidering this doctrine. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we'll get a solution from Congress, but we haven't gotten one so far. Uh, so states really can play a leadership role uh, on this issue and ensuring that the rights of their citizens will be protected. Uh, Clark, does it make it easier for the Supreme Court to revisit this issue if a whole slew of states have said, nah, no go? I'm not sure. I think I, I think the the short answer is the Supreme Court has made fairly clear that it's not interested in taking a lead on fixing the qualified immunity problem. I think that's unfortunate because, of course, the Supreme Court created the qualified immunity problem by inventing the doctrine out of whole cloth. But the more legislative in interest we see in addressing the situation, I think the less pressure there will be on the Supreme Court to take a lead role. Now, as we've noted, the Supreme Court will continue probably, you know, trying to sand off some of the rough edges, uh, largely, I think, in an effort to prevent the judiciary from being embarrassed by some of the truly ridiculous cases uh, that Ben cites in his book. But in terms of of stepping up and, and effecting really systemic uh, reform, I, I think that ship has sailed. And as Jay has explained in a, in a very smart blog post, um, it, it's probably not a very good idea to look to the Supreme Court to save us from qualified immunity. That's going to be the job of Congress and state legislatures. We have seen now uh, what has been described as justice for George Floyd. That's not a fair characterization in my view because George Floyd is dead. Uh, but Derek Chauvin was convicted uh, on all charges that he faced in Minnesota. And I guess the other thing that's troubling about this case to me at least is that this case is notable. Yeah, I think there's three things that we should keep in mind about the the Derek Chauvin verdict um, when it comes to qualified immunity. Um, the first is that just because this particular police officer was convicted um, for the misconduct that he committed, the murder that he committed, no one should suppose that that this happens routinely or that police are, um, are reliably held accountable through the criminal justice system. It would be like looking at a plane crash and saying, oh, see, planes crash all the time. No, they don't. That just happened that one time and everybody noticed it. The second point is that not all police misconduct is a crime. And you have to have a civil rights avenue that ordinary citizens can initiate and pursue themselves so they don't have to try to rely on a prosecutor or rely on an internal affairs uh, you know, detective to initiate the process. So that's why we need a civil uh, lawsuit as an avenue. Um, and you know, the third point um, about the Derek Chauvin uh, situation is that Without qualified immunity, without citizen juries being able to send a signal to members of law enforcement um, on a on a systemic basis, police just aren't going to know what we expect of them when it comes to the use of force. So, in effect, judges have have distorted the feedback that police are getting, and instead of of regular, continuous, accurate feedback that they would get through a civil damages uh, regime, police get sporadic and inaccurate feedback from a relentlessly government favoring judiciary. And that has got to stop because clearly there is a disconnect between what we as the public expect from police um, and what they think is expected of them. That has got to change. And the only thing I would add to that um, is regarding um, the Derek Chauvin case is, I, you know, I've heard some people object that, well, you know, uh, George Floyd's family, you know, already got like a large settlement from the city of Minneapolis. So obviously qualified immunity didn't prevent that from happening. And while that's technically true, you know, this it's it's worth keeping in mind that this is the highest profile police killing in at least a decade, if not ever. Um, and so this is an extraordinary circumstance where there was extraordinary national pressure on the city uh, to resolve this, uh, even this, resolve the civil lawsuit in a way that, you know, would seem fair and appropriate. And I, I think it's good that that happened um, for George Floyd's family. But it is not 
it should not by any means be taken as something that would be typical of what happens in the aftermath of an unlawful police killing. Uh, and the unfortunate fact is that had this case not settled, even though Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder, it is entirely possible that in a civil suit, he would have been entitled to qualified immunity because it would have come down to whether there were there was a prior case in the Eighth Circuit involving sufficiently similar facts. So, you know, his George Floyd's family did get, you know, a significant settlement in this case, but we need a solution that works in the typical case where there is not a national spotlight uh, on the incident. Yeah, you know, we uh, regular old people tend to think that, oh, this is just now starting that uh, and the and the only times when cops uh, are committing heinous crimes are when we are when they're caught on video camera. And the reality is that this behavior has been going on for, <laughs> I don't know, 100, 100 years. And uh, we are just starting to find out about it because of video cameras. And there's still, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases of police acting in such an abusive way that we never hear about. And, you know, we we tend to focus on fatalities, murders, people who lose their lives. But you know, just the every day of cops beating someone up, uh, you know, abusing them uh, physically, verbally. Stealing. <laughs> is a behavior that continues and is way in excess of what we ever hear about. Ben Cohen is author of Above the Law. Clark Neely is a senior vice president at the Cato Institute, and Jay Schweiker is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Two states have decided to eliminate the doctrine of qualified immunity for the purposes of state lawsuits against police. Brian Egolf is the Democratic Speaker of the House in New Mexico, which eliminated assertions of qualified immunity in state courts for almost all public officials. We talked about the whys and hows of providing state-level relief for violations of the rights of New Mexicans. New Mexico has an interesting distinction in that two libertarian wish list items New Mexico has done legislatively, and that was eliminating uh, civil asset forfeiture in the state, and most recently, eliminating qualified immunity for almost all public officials. And that's a distinction they're worth making. How did this come together? Well, I think uh, for these two uh, wish list items, uh, as you put it, they make good common sense to a lot of people. Uh, we in New Mexico are proud that we have a multicultural uh, state, that we respect each other, we listen to each other, we want to make sure that we take care of one another. Uh, along with that are some of the you know, Western American you know, values of uh, personal responsibility and accountability. And you see that come through in many, many things that we do here in New Mexico uh, with, you know, the elimination of civil asset forfeiture. I think we wanted to uh, get rid of a policy that was straight up unfair. You get pulled over. You are not convicted. Sometimes you're not even charged with a serious crime, but whatever personal property you had in your vehicle now belongs to the police. When you say that to uh, legislators, when you describe that circumstance, people don't really understand how that's possible. Yeah, they don't believe it. And then you have to keep explaining it. <laughs> That, that's exactly right. You know, when, when we have policy that is uh, just bananas, 
you have to explain it over and over again because you have to get over that hump of incredulity. And that is what led me to want to get into the fight to eliminate qualified immunity. So let's uh, let's think about what was the partisan breakdown here? You're the Speaker of the House. You carried this bill uh, yourself, which is itself a pretty big statement when you have a member of House leadership carrying a bill. And that pretty much says this is a priority of this body. Right. This is I've carried two bills uh, since I've become speaker. Uh, that was a bit of a break with New Mexico tradition. Uh, often, you know, the Speaker of the House you know, would carry lots of bills, but I decided to go the opposite direction and really try to become someone who administered operations in the House. But there were two bills that I've sponsored or that I've carried since becoming Speaker. One was the bill to create the New Mexico Civil Rights Commission whose work led to the introduction of the Civil Rights Act, and then the second bill would be the Civil Rights Act itself. Um, and I, when we were working to create the Civil Rights Commission, I told a story going back to this idea of incredulity, or just, you know, you can't believe that the law is what it is. Uh, my law partner uh, had a federal uh, civil rights case. Uh, she was representing a young boy who was the victim of repeat horrific sexual abuse uh, and sexual assault molestation at the hands of foster parents in New Mexico. And she went to federal court. The foster parents were deemed to be state actors, which is the legal term of art that you need to establish before you can proceed with a civil rights claim. Uh, but we, or she, my law partner, ended up losing the case because of qualified immunity, because there was not a Tenth Circuit decision that informed foster parents that uh, committing sexual uh, assault and molesting a child deprives that child of rights guaranteed to the child by the U.S. Constitution. And I, she, you know, explained it to me over and over again. And I just could not believe that a young child suffering horrific abuse couldn't get justice in the courts because of qualified immunity. Uh, then I started to follow the work of Justin Amash in Congress and his work. And uh, that's that's what led to the Civil Rights Commission being created really in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. You know, so there was another aspect of this work that was uh, you know, responsive to what was happening around the country and uh, what was happening uh, right here in New Mexico. What was the partisan breakdown of these votes and how supportive was the governor? Uh, it was, unfortunately, uh, not a bipartisan effort. Well, we worked hard to get Republican support for the bill. Uh, we did not get a single Republican vote. Uh, for uh, the New Mexico Civil Rights Act. Uh, it had very broad support among the Democratic Party and the governor uh, was involved throughout the process uh, to, you know, and was very, it was very supportive. He ultimately signed the bill. Uh, we made many changes to the legislation as it went through the process, addressing concerns uh, about the scope and breadth of the bill. Uh, there were some technical changes we wanted to hear concerns and criticism and then respond to that. So the bill as passed was substantially different than it was when it was introduced, but we maintained the core portions, which were abolishment of qualified immunity and a state cause of action to uh, vindicate rights secured by the New Mexico Bill of Rights. So uh, you mentioned something before we started recording, and I want to make sure that uh, you have a chance to reiterate it here, which is uh, qualified immunity as a doctrine uh, established by the U.S. Supreme Court is, in a sense, the height of judicial activism. And that is something that uh, conservatives, uh, many Republicans, claim to really hate about our judicial system. And yet here it is. 
yeah, I mean, you we hear, I would say, 99.9% of the comment and criticism of uh, you know, so-called judicial activism or judge-created law, in my experience, comes from uh, Republicans, comes from conservatives. Here, with qualified immunity, you have a legal doctrine what is essentially a law created out of whole cloth by the United States Supreme Court. It has never been passed or adopted by Congress. Uh, I don't believe it's ever been passed or adopted by any state legislature. It is the height of judicial activism. It is the apex of judge created law. Yet we couldn't find in New Mexico a single Republican to stand with us as we abolished a doctrine that does uh, injustice to so many people every year and blocks essential accountability for government officials that trample on the constitutional rights of Americans. It's uh, disappointing, but uh, despite the disappointment, uh, we'll proceed and uh, everyone will be able to enjoy the benefits of the law, uh, Republican or Democrat. Uh, just the same. The governor was supportive. You were unable to get Republican votes uh, on on this bill. But what about interest groups that uh, have a stake in the outcome here? What was the response from, say, police or uh, other civil rights groups? Well, this bill brought together uh, literally the Koch family and the ACLU, so Americans for Prosperity, and the uh, ACLU uh, were uh, on board in helping to get this bill passed. Uh, Cato did tremendous work uh, to help get this bill passed, uh, supplied excellent expert uh, insight and research data, and was critical to passage. We had the whole spectrum of organizations. We had the Sierra Club. We had Planned Parenthood, we had the ACLU, we had Americans for Prosperity, we had uh, Cato. I mean, it was across the political spectrum. I'd never, I, I truly had never seen a coalition of organizations like the coalition that formed around the Civil Rights Act. And I think it's because people saw it as a tool to protect individuals, to make sure that individual liberty, whether it's liberty to enjoy the security and sanctity of your person, uh, the uh, liberty to enjoy a clean environment, to uh, have personal autonomy, you know, all of these interests uh, came together and provided a very powerful coalition. Uh, law enforcement was uh, almost uniformly opposed to the bill because of, I think, some misunderstandings and misinformation that's, that um, uh, led uh, sort of led the conversation at the beginning. Uh, police officers were uh, basically misinformed about what the bill did and how it affects individual law enforcement officers. And uh, local government, so county governments, city governments were not supportive for reasons of you know, what they said were you know, cost and uh, worries that they would lose their insurance policies if this bill were to become the law. Uh, so it was very important to have this broad coalition of outside organizations supporting the bill to counter what ordinarily would have been extremely influential uh, opposition from county governments. You know, the, uh, the Association of Counties is a, is a very significant uh, player in the state legislature, as it, I'm sure it is in other states. So we needed, the, we needed all the help we could get to uh, overcome the county's objections. So what would your message be to lawmakers in, let's just pick two states at random, Minnesota and Kentucky? The message would be explain the 
clearest example of, of injustice that comes because of qualified immunity. Tell the story. The, uh, the story that I told just a, mi- uh, a minute ago about my law partner's case, when, when people hear those types of stories, uh, that their constituents, their fellow Kentuckians or Minnesotans are denied justice in court because of qualified immunity, those stories need to be told to legislators. Those stories need to be told to policymakers. I then would say put a bill into the process with a, an understanding at the front end that you need all sides to speak and to be heard on this policy decision. And don't be afraid to make changes uh, to to your bill. Don't be afraid to make changes to the policy to address legitimate concerns so long as you're maintaining the core of what you're uh, of what you're working toward. Uh, but you know, you know, the law enforcement is a powerful you know, voice in the conversation. It's important to acknowledge that this is not just about police officers. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that the vast, vast majority of police officers are good people who want to help their community. Uh, but every once in a while, and you know, well, I shouldn't even say every once in a while, I think you know, too often, a small, a very small number of you know, bad police officers commit horrific crimes like the murder of George Floyd. And but you don't want to paint all of law enforcement with a broad brush because it's it's not fair, it's not accurate. Uh, and so listening to them, you know, making sure that their voice is part of the conversation is essential. Democrat Brian Egolf is the Speaker of the New Mexico House. It's hard to get criminal justice data from states. The data we can access is quite bad. Stuart Buck is the vice president for research at Arnold Ventures. He argues that in order to improve the quality of policing to focus on areas needing genuine reform, we need better data. He spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. How do you evaluate the current status of collecting criminal justice data in in a both a format and a, a rigorous way that makes it useful for people trying to study trends in criminal justice. Right. So so one of the examples comes from a, a book on misdemeanors by Alexandra Natapoff, um, who's, who's a scholar who studies these issues. And she was trying to write about misdemeanors across America. And one of the early chapters in her book goes into the extraordinary difficulty of just estimating how many misdemeanors occur across the country each year. You might think this is simple, uh, you know, just a simple counting exercise, um, like counting the number of, you know, states or counties in the country, Um, but it's not so. Uh, It turns out that some states don't really report the number of misdemeanors that they prosecuted in in a given year. Of the states that do report the number, uh, they do it in wildly inconsistent ways. So you will see one state that has, uh, let's say, X number of misdemeanors, and the neighboring state, for no apparent reason, has three X the number of misdemeanors. And you know, she's trying to puzzle, well, why would that be? It turns out the second state is counting all traffic stops as misdemeanors, and the first state wasn't counting traffic stops. So obviously, tra- there are millions of traffic stops every year. If you count them as misdemeanors, all of a sudden, that, that makes misdemeanor a very different category of offense. So even just counting the number of misdemeanors is something that's very hard. Counting the number of people in jail is also very hard. So there was a, a researcher at the Brennan Center who wrote, we tried to develop an estimate of unique jail admissions annually uh, to under- understand the population. It's impossible. The data to do it just don't exist. And where they do exist, they're contradictory. So those are just a couple of examples where it's hard to get even the most basic elementary information about just what's occurring in the criminal justice system. I spoke with the Cato Institute's Walter Olson recently about uh, hate crime data in the United States uh, and uh, following our recording for the podcast, uh, John Pfaff, who studies this uh, these issues extensively, said that might be the one area of criminal law where we would be better off not collecting the data. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's like 
it's better to have nothing at all than to have uh, data and information that is completely misleading because you know some states or localities are counting completely different things as hate crimes and some states aren't counting anything at all so so in that case it you know ha it looks like you have data or some data but it's actually misleading so um yeah it's better not to be actively misled into thinking that some states are hundreds of t hundreds of times more hateful than than other states when that's just completely an artifact of how the data is being uh, defined and collected and reported so the feds uh do cannot really compel states to uh, provide this kind of data in a uniform format, and uh, we could argue about whether that's on net good or bad, but uh, to the extent uh, states are interested in providing data that is useful, uh, what should what should they be looking at? I mean, I've seen the Measures for Justice Project, and I, I know that they've had a very difficult time trying to uh, collect data in a, in a consistent format, but to the extent that state lawmakers uh, even police agencies are probably interested in knowing how well they stack up against uh, other police agencies and other states. But where should they start? That's a great question. Um, so, so the federal government, I would say, is not completely impotent here. I mean, based on uh, you know conditions attached to federal funding that goes out across the country to different state agencies, um, it, the federal government often attaches conditions uh, to that funding. Uh, some of which are, you know, report the number of crimes uh, that occur. And so we have the FBI's uh, Uniform Crime Reports or UCR data that's existed for years. They've been trying to switch to a, a different system. Uh, and we could get deep into the weeds with people complaining that the, the newer updated system uh, is also very inadequate and you know, inconsistently reported from different states. Um, so, so anyway, the point is that the federal government is not you know, completely impotent here. Um, there's also some efforts uh, by the, the Council on State Governments. They, they got a grant from the Bureau of Justice Affairs, which is this, uh, I guess, kind of subunit of the Department of Justice, um, to try to define better data standards in criminal justice. Um, you know, doing so, I mean, not, not with the idea of forcing states to come along, but, you know, trying to invite states to collaborate and come up with some consistent uh, data standards uh, for some of these issues. And so I think there, there's I think there's enough people, hopefully, that are interested in being able to, as you say, compare across states and just know what's going on. Um, it doesn't make sense that, that so many states and so many counties are doing things in their own siloed, unique, uh, idiosyncratic way. I think there's there's room for um, both conditions attached to federal funding and there's room for just uh, collaborative efforts like the council and state governments is leading. Yeah, there are, uh, you know, many states enter these compacts with other states for accounting standards, for uh, other kinds of measurement standards when it comes to public finance. I, I can't imagine that it's that difficult to uh, put together a set of standards that would work across states that uh, relates specifically to criminal justice. Yeah. I'm, and I mean, one of the issues here is that you know, some of this stuff is so deep into the weeds and so technical. It's not a sexy political issue like, you know, talking about should we defund the police or not. Um, but I think it's actually in some ways more important because, you know, some of these other issues get so polarized and or you know, hot button topics, you know, to debate or talk about. Um, but in the at the end of the day, like no matter what sorts of policies we have regarding how the police are funded or how, how the system works, we need better data just to, to figure out what's going on and to figure out what, what what is working and what's not and who's subjected to the system and how. I mean, those, those are kinds of basic fundamental issues that people on all sides should agree. It's better to have more data that's more consistent and that actually makes sense as opposed to having, you know, a complete lack of data or data that's just wildly inconsistent and can't be compared from one place to the next. And you would hate he would hate to imagine that uh, protests, widespread protests are being done in the name of something that is rooted in bad data. you want you want the protest to represent something that is true and accurate and fair, and you want it to be something that we can measure over time to see if we're making progress on treating people with the due process that they're entitled to. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and that second point is especially important because if we we should all want to know what's working in the criminal justice system, you know, no matter what our goals are. I mean, if if you if your goal is to 
you know, reduce the number of days that uh, people who are not yet judged guilty stay in jail, then you, you won't know whether that's happening if you can't even count the number of people in jail or count the number of days they're spending there without some heroic effort to kind of reconstruct the data, for, you know, and reinvent the wheel, right? We, we need just more basic information. And then what, whatever policy is at issue, um, we, we could all benefit from knowing, you know, what are the trends, you know, what, what seems to be working, what seems to be going in a particular direction, whether positive or negative. Do the feds do this better? <sighs> that's, I mean, probably, probably at some level, just because of more resources. Um, and yeah, I mean, better staffing at the federal government than say at the, the local county level, uh, you know, in, in the 3000 plus counties across the United States, that's not to say the federal government is by any means perfect. And, uh, the Bureau of justice statistics, um, for quite a while has arguably been underfunded, uh, compared to, uh, you know, other statistical agencies at the federal level. Um, it, it doesn't publish data as often as criminal justice scholars would like. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot the federal government can do to improve. But in terms of states doing this together, it seems like there, the, the, the movement that is needed is for states to agree, one, we want to do this better, mm -hmm. and two, we want to know if we're making progress. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, the United States imprisons so many people and we spend so much money on police. I mean, larger than most militaries around the world uh, that we would like to know whether that money's being being spent wisely. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and, and yet, as I said, we, we have so little data on this. So, you know, for example, there's this uh, Princeton professor named Jonathan Mumolo. He's a political scientist, but he writes about criminal justice and policing issues. Um, he wrote an article for The Atlantic a couple of years ago um, where, where he was trying to, to just collect data on the militarization of police. You know, this this phenomenon where uh, police get like donated or surplus military equipment. And so oftentimes you'll see photos of these protests and it looks like the police look like they're in a war zone. Um, you know, decked out with all kinds of equipment, sometimes tanks, et cetera. So what, what uh, Mumolo said in his article was that in a federalist system with more than 15,000 state and local law enforcement agencies and virtually no standardized reporting requirements, reliable and comprehensive data on police behavior have eluded scholars for decades. And that's, that's just with regard to policing, right? So police are just one aspect of the criminal justice system. There's also jails, uh, courthouses, prosecutors, which are especially a black box as to the data on what they're doing and how they're making decisions. Then you've got prisons. I mean, there's so many different agencies that are, are involved in the criminal justice system at some level. And oftentimes, even within the same county, it's hard to get data where you could just figure out which, what happens to a particular person, a particular defendant, as they move from being arrested by the police to showing up at a jail to showing up at the courthouse and so forth. It's hard to figure out who, who the same people are, let, let alone what happens to them and why, which, which are the really important questions that uh, people interested in policy would want to know. What has uh, the research that uh, your team has done, what does that tell us? Well, I mean, the, so our team, we, uh, we spearheaded this report that we're calling Campaign uh, for Criminal Justice Data Modernization uh, that we got uh, 25 uh, plus experts and scholars uh, to sign on to. And I'm sure many more would. I mean, we couldn't survey it, the whole nation. Um, uh, but the, the basic thrust of this report is that there are several actions the Biden administration uh, should take or could take uh, to try to improve criminal justice data across uh, the country, uh, including pushing for greater transparency, you know, transparency around things like police uh, abuse incidents or allegations. Like that's something that's not often publicly reported and police unions often try to you know, prevent it from being publicly reported, um, Im improving data quality, you know, the quality of, of, of how, how data is collected and reported, improving the connections between data, between different uh, state and county agencies, and just improving the technology, the, the data systems at issue. So maybe improving procurement policies so that we, we, we get better tech technological systems in there. So that, so that's not in the way. So anyway, it's a, it's a, I think a useful roadmap for the federal government and for uh, how the Biden administration uh, could take some active steps to improve criminal justice data. And if they take up any of the recommendations, I think that would be progress. Stuart Buck is the vice president for research at Arnold Ventures. 
Congress is looking more seriously at ending cannabis prohibition at the federal level. Most Americans, 60% or so, now live in state jurisdictions where recreational marijuana is either legal or decriminalized. Cato's Aaron Parton details the move to end cannabis prohibition and why it represents a long and coming victory for freedom. We've seen a lot of efforts recently at the federal level to reform cannabis law, that is, to end uh, prohibition of marijuana. Where do things stand right now? Currently, there's legislation that we are expecting to be introduced in the Senate soon. Uh, Senators Chuck Schumer, Cory Booker, and Ron Wyden have been leading this charge to get some some sort of legislation put forward this session. Uh, this is nothing particularly new. Over the past several years, there have been a number of attempts largely driven by members of the House to decriminalize or legalize marijuana on the federal level. Those have been so far unsuccessful. Um, as with as with any hot-button issue, the hardest part is really getting the bipartisan support necessary, uh, the votes necessary to, to pass this legislation. Now, you make note in a uh, blog post with uh, Cato's Jeff Myron that 60%, nearly 60% of Americans live in a state where recreational marijuana use and possession are either legal or decriminalized. That's a really a, a stunning fact. And of course, we're sitting at a time in which uh, support for ending cannabis prohibition is at an all-time high. Yeah. So recent polls show that nearly 7 in 10 Americans support ending the criminalization of marijuana or cannabis products, whether that's through decriminalization measures, which have been gaining tractions in state uh, states recently, or through legalization, which has also been gaining traction. Uh, most recently, New York uh, and Virginia are the two, two latest members uh, to kind of come to the party, so to speak, and get on board with legalized recreational marijuana use. Um, at this point, any states that that haven't jumped on board yet are really uh, kind of fight, fighting. They're going against the current, uh, so to speak. They're, um, it almost seems inevitable. Uh, of course, nothing's inevitable. Uh, this federal push won't have any direct impact on whether or not states do, do inevitably legalize, but um, it will possibly push for legislators and grassroots level referendums to, to start popping up in these new states. So what has the state experience been? I know uh, you have attempted to estimate what the fiscal impact has been for uh, state budgets, but oh, so what have you found? Well, we found that marijuana legalization is a fantastic source of tax revenue. Uh, we've examined, of course, Washington, Oregon, Colorado um, in depth. Uh, those are states that were early adopters of legal marijuana regimes, uh, and they've had a huge amount of success in generating revenue, uh, primarily through establishing systems of um, legal sale. And that's, of course, you know, the big hurdle for many states. It's easy to say, okay, uh, cannabis is legal now. It's a lot harder to set up a structure that regulates the uh, the growth, the sale, the manufacture of cannabis derivatives. Um, and for for naysayers, for those arguing against the legalization of marijuana, we really don't find that many impacts. You do see a slightly increased use of marijuana in states that have legalized it. Um, you would expect to see that in terms of effects on uh, test scores for high school and middle school students, in terms of traffic accidents and fatalities and other public health indicators. You really don't see much, if any, movement. So we can kind of say overall the impact of marijuana legalization hasn't been so much a a boom as just you know a little a little pop. I spoke recently with Jim Higdon. He is a cannabis entrepreneur in Kentucky and uh, and a former journalist who who covered this issue extensively and he said that the farm bill is the way to go. Uh, and I think he shared probably some similar concerns that you or I would share which is if you're concerned about excessive federal regulation in this industry, where, as you point out, we, we've seen almost 
uh, no real impact on things like test scores or traffic fatalities, uh, things that that are would be considered negative uh, indicators uh, under a legalization regime. He says, if you want to avoid all of that, just increase the allowable THC content uh, under the farm bill and suddenly what everyone knows as marijuana is legal and you haven't created this superstructure of regulation. Right. And I think that's I think that approach has some merit um, where that approach falls possibly a little bit short in is uh, many of the advocates, uh, including Senator Schumer, Booker and Wyden, are really focusing on kind of attacking two problems at once. First, decriminalize uh, cannabis federally. And second, take a approach to try to attack the criminal justice side of the issue by expunging records uh, by ending enforcement, by dropping cases currently pending. So if it kind of depends at the end of the day what the goal is. Um, I think even decriminalization, which falls short of of legalization, and that's I think that's an important distinction. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's decriminalization is a baby step, but it's it's still a step in the right direction. Younger people may not know this, but President Joe Biden, back in the 90s, was a big-time drug warrior and seemed to revel in putting people in jail for uh, crimes such as those uh, that would would get you popped uh, involving uh, cannabis. Do we have any sense of where he is on this today? Right. I think, if anything, President Biden might be a larger hurdle than getting 60 votes in the Senate. Um, his administration has not said much in recent weeks or months, but from the campaign trail and from his his history, he is very much against legalization and might be lukewarm at best on the issue of decriminalization. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think if the Senate is able to find the adequate an adequate number of votes to to pass any inter, any legislation that may be introduced in the coming days and weeks, um, I don't think that President Biden would uh, choose to veto it. He might be a little bit loath to um, to accept the new status quo, but I think uh, he realizes that it is, with public opinion shifting the way it has in, th- in the past several years, um, it's a losing battle. And I don't think one that he would choose to, to uh, take. One of the uh, arguments I hear that uh, also with our with my podcast with Jim Higdon, a, a point that he made is that a lot of the cannabis products that flow into states where it is still prohibited, a lot of those products might very well be junk or worse than junk. Uh, it could be actively damaging to people. And that may be because this is a product that did not pass legal muster in the states where cannabis has been legalized. So for the remaining states, the 40-some percent of Americans who live in in states where uh, cannabis has not been made legal for or decriminalized for recreational purposes, that could be a, 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 a severe problem. Right. And that gets to the heart of why prohibition doesn't and never has worked. Uh, people will always find black or gray markets to go to. The products in those markets are typically... Um, uh, unregulated, frequently unsafe. You know, going back to the bathtub gin of of uh, alcohol pro- prohibition, you don't simply speaking, you don't know what you're getting, and your suppliers don't have any incentive to make sure that the product they give you is safe, because if it harms you, they face no consequences. You're not going to, you know, call the authorities and say, "Hi, I illegally purchased these drugs. I would like to turn in my supplier because they made me sick." Um, no, you're, it's, it's just going to be you uh, by yourself, uh, hopefully hopefully not too sick. So the, uh, the DEA and uh, the president, there's this weird scheduling of drugs that we have where we're in a situation uh, right now where cocaine is a Schedule II drug, cannabis is a Schedule I drug, which Schedule I indicates no medical value and high potential for abuse. Cocaine apparently doesn't quite meet that uh, qualification. But where does scheduling stand now? Something that could be done effectively without Congress. 
Right. The DEA could, if they chose to, deschedule or reschedule marijuana in the, you know, tomorrow. Of course, there are some administrative burdens. It would take some time, but that is that is an option. However, they seem to have no inclination to do so. Um, as you said, right now, marijuana is uh, classified as a Schedule One substance, having no medicinal value and a high potential for abuse. The no medicinal value is a dubious claim at best, given the growing medical and scientific literature surrounding research related to the effects of cannabis on uh, health issues such as glaucoma, depression, pain, and the like. There's actually a case right now in the Ninth Circuit, uh, Sisley v. DEA, where the uh, complainants are attempting to compel the DEA to reschedule marijuana, arguing that given that two-thirds of the states have legalized medical marijuana in some form, there are the argument that marijuana has no medicinal use is entirely inaccurate. Uh, that's, of course, uh, I believe that case was originally filed in 2019. It's still working its way through through the courts, but um, it will be interesting to keep an eye on that and see whether or not the DEA is is instructed to rethink how they classify marijuana. Eric Parton is a research associate at the Cato Institute. Eighty-four countries around the world have criminal blasphemy laws, according to a recent report by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Mob activity, threats, and violence based on accusations of blasphemy are also common in some of those countries. The result is the silencing of millions of people and the direct persecution of hundreds of people every year by law or vigilantism for merely expressing their ideas and opinions. At a Cato Institute event in February, Cato's Mustafa Akiol, author of the new book, Reopening Muslim Minds, describes some of the costs of blasphemy laws throughout the world. Now, as a Muslim who's looking into these issues, and as someone who's been thinking about issues of freedom in Islam, uh, this makes me sad, and it shows me that we need some work to do. Uh, and I think responsible Muslim clerics, opinion leaders, political leaders, uh, intellectuals have some work to do on this. And there are efforts, of course, for reforming blasphemy laws. A lot of scholars have written important articles, there are movements, there are calls uh, in the Muslim world to uh, getting away with not just blasphemy laws, but any other act of coercion in the name of Islam. That would include apostasy laws that would include religious policing, let alone other forms of violence. Therefore, for, I'll say a few things from the Islamic point of view. First of all, I think we should see here that beyond religion or even beneath religion, there's something else here play, what social scientists call sometimes honor culture. Uh, it refers to a culture when, where one's reputation or values, religious or not, uh, is uh, eagerly protected by force. No wonder honor culture leads to what we can call secular blasphemy laws. My home country, Turkey, as you mentioned, is a severe case of that. Uh, since 2014, more than 60,000 people have been prosecuted in Turkey, and thousands of them have been given prison sentences for insulting not God or the prophet, but the president. Uh, this may, in fact, be the most severe blasphemy, one of the most severe blasphemy crises in the world right now, if we defer the term blasphemy a bit broadly. Uh, but besides that, besides honor culture, nationalist pride, and all those sort of things that also uh, suppress free speech, there's clearly an issue with understanding of religion and religious values and religious law in the Muslim context. So I'll uh, say a few things about that. And, and I should say that the laws in question, for example, in Pakistan, people sometimes remind that they are left over from the colonial era, which is true technically, but the, those laws 
all, most of the laws are in Pakistan or some post-colonial Muslim societies are left over from that era, which is a problem in itself, a grim era in itself. But they have been strengthened and, and they have been made more severe and more definitive with a clearly Islamic ambition to silence blasphemy. Uh, I call Islamic, you know, relatively speaking, of course, not every Muslim would agree with that which should bring us to an honest discussion about blasphemy laws within Islam as a religion, within the religious law uh, tradition in Islam, the Sharia and its interpretation by the jurists, the Fuqaha. And when we look into that, we will see a clearly grim picture, and that is medieval Islamic jurists uh, considered blasphemy as a capital crime. That is true for the four main Sunni schools and the main Shia school, the Jafari school. They all consider it's a capital crime, sub-Allah uh, sub, sub or sub-Al-Rasul, which is insult of God and the Prophet. Uh, those people who did this should be executed. They just disagreed on whether you know the, uh, the blasphemer can repent or not. It is interesting that they made, uh, they were even harsher on the insult of prophets more than God. For an interesting reasoning, they thought uh, because God will punish uh, blasphemer on his own, he's, he has his ultimate presence, but the prophet is dead and he's gone. We have to protect the prophet on his behalf after he's gone. So those medieval verdicts in Islamic jurisprudence are there. It's death penalty for blasphemers. Not all Muslims are certainly eager to implement these laws. Many Muslims are not even aware of them, but some are. Uh, these are the people that we call Islamists. And uh, Marvi described that scene in Pakistan, how it works as a force in society that even calls on the state. And if the state even doesn't, does its own the act of punishing blasphemy through violence. So those forces are there because those are they are convicted that this is the Islamic thing to do. It's written in medieval jurisprudence. And a, a small extremist strain within that Islamist universe even believes in implementing this as terrorism in the middle of Europe, which is what we saw in France, unfortunately, in the horrific terrorist attacks there in the past decade. So I believe an honest conversation is needed. And... Uh, an honest conversation to face these blasphemy laws and to repeal them is needed. And for that, it's a huge topic, which I cover in my forthcoming book, Reopening Muslim Minds. But I'll just here highlight three points. One is that I think Muslims uh, who believe in blasphemy laws should see that these laws appeared in a historical context where everybody had blasphemy laws. I mean, every, by everybody, I'm referring to especially in, in particular to the Byzantine and Sassanid empires, who had similar blasphemy laws. These were the empires that Muslims faced and partly inherited in terms of even their legal notions. When you look into Sassanid laws, for example, that ban enmity towards gods, it sounds very similar to some of the things written in the Muslim literature about blasphemy. Uh, and so therefore, when Muslims look into what's written in their jurisprudence books, uh, they should consider that maybe they're not looking into the eternal principles of Islam, but just a bygone archaic era in human history. Second, uh, blasphemy laws are justified through some episodes written in the biographies of the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, where we, we hear that some people insulted the Prophet or wrote satirical poets against him, and then they were executed by early Muslims. So this is taken as a precedent to establish blasphemy laws. But if you look into those stories more carefully, which I do in my forthcoming book, you see that the issue there was not mere satire or criticism or insult, but active enmity in terms of physical attacks or incitement to war uh, or at least violence against Muslims. Uh, meanwhile, there are reports that Prophet actually didn't punish who insulted him but quite the contrary, show them grace and mercy. And I think that's probably the more uh, universal uh, lesson we should drive from uh, the life of the Prophet. Third, the only undisputed source in Islam, every Muslim would agree with that, is the Quran. And when you look into the Quran on this issue, everybody can see that there is no earthly punishment in the Quran for blasphemy or apostasy for that matter. 
the most relevant verse of the Quran to this issue is verse Nisa 124 or 4.124, uh, which I have referred to in various writings to Muslims. It says, if you hear people denying and ridiculing God's revelation, do not sit with them unless they start to talk of other things. So the verse doesn't say go and attack people if they ridicule Islam. It doesn't even say silence them. It just says, do not sit with those people, which means just disengage. I think this can be very well the basis of a proper Muslim response to blasphemy in the modern world. If there are people who criticize Islam, who offend Islam, don't listen to them, don't join their events, or you know, maybe you can boycott them. You, 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 you may stop buying their magazine if you were buying. Uh, but there's no justification really in the Quran for coercion, for violence, for killing people, for jailing people. So with such, I think, arguments, there needs to be a stronger push in the Muslim world. And also I think Muslims who are eager to punish blasphemy by force should realize that they're just killing and tormenting innocent people one after another. In Pakistan, most burning case, but other places as well. And by killing and tormenting innocent people in the name of your fate, you're not bringing any honor to your fate. You're just bringing shame. So this is what I think from an Islamic point of view, and this, I, this is what I see as the Islamic antidote to the radicalism in the name of Islam as we see in this issue. Uh, and, and I think seeing what is happening on the ground should show us to Muslims who are listening to us in Pakistan or elsewhere, how important this issue is, how much of a problem is stain on the honor of Islam this issue is right now in the world. And here are some of the arguments that we can use to move forward. Mustafa Akiol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. past 50 years, the United States experienced three major medical malpractice crises, each fostering a vigorous, politicized debate about the causes of premium spikes and the impact on access to care and defensive medicine. In a new book from the Cato Institute, Medical Malpractice Litigation, How It Works, Why Tort Reform Hasn't Helped, experts in the field and from across the political spectrum provide an accessible, fact-based response to the questions that ordinary Americans policymakers have about the performance of the medical malpractice litigation system. Get your copy today at Cato.org and online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.